Welcome to the Judgment Call Podcast, a podcast where I bring together some of the most curious minds on the planet. Risk takers, adventurers, travelers, investors, entrepreneurs, and simply mind bogglers. Find all episodes of this show. Simply go to Spotify, iTunes, or YouTube, or go to our website, judgmentcallpodcast.com. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes or subscribe to us on YouTube. This episode of the Judgment Call Podcast is sponsored by Mighty Travels Premium. Full disclosure, this is my business. What we do at Mighty Travels Premium is to find the airfare deals that you really want. Thousands of subscribers have saved up to 95% in the airfare. Those include $150 round-trip tickets to Hawaii for many cities in the US, or $600 life-led tickets in business class from the US to Asia, or $100 business class life-led tickets from Africa round-trip all the way to Asia. In case you didn't know, about half the world is open for business again and accepts travelers. Most of those countries are in South America, Africa, and Eastern Europe. To try out Mighty Travels Premium, go to mightytravels.com slash MTP, or if that's too many letters for you, simply go to MTP, the number four, and the letter U.com to sign up for your 30-day free trial. So Arno, you've been involved in pretty much anything I can think of that sounds like a lot of fun. You've been an officer in the army, maybe not so much fun, but then you've been an investment banker, you've been an entrepreneur, you've been a stand-up comedian, you did your stint as a Hollywood actor, um, you also became an artist and hacker, and you are a public speaker, for instance, at TED events. How did this all happen? Um, was that something you set out to do when you were eight years old, or was it more of an accident? I mean, two things. So I can give you the answer, what I think it was, and, and then what I thought about recently, actually. So I always had a yeah endless bounce of energy, and I wanted to do so much. I mean, I remember being four years old and being obsessed with American highways and just the, the intensity of cars. And I remember being nine years old, nine, the first time, the first time a friend of mine started learning Japanese. And basically, that was the first time in my life where I knew I was going to end up in the US and I knew I was going to end up in Japan at some point. Doing what? I was not sure. But I knew at five and eight years old those things. I was going to go to America and then around nine, I was going to go to Japan. Um, now, looking back also at my life, I've been thinking the last actually few months, I, I really think because there was probably a you know, a lack of, uh, maybe a lack of love when I was a, when I was a kid, a lack of, a, la a lack of pushing, you know, uh, pushing me in a, in a good direction and a lack of coaching. And when you have parents like this, they, they were pretty much involved with their own lives. Um, not, they were not, you know, obsessed with the kids whatsoever. So we were pretty much left to ourselves. And, you know, either you... You know, you become a, uh, I don't know, you, you get bullied at school or you become a victim and you become, a, I don't know, a, in your world and just studying. Either you get beat up or you, you become a nerd. Sometimes that goes together. Or you just dream and dream and dream. And I don't think my life really started before I was 15 years old. We, so it's so interesting. Actually, I have not many memories of me before the age of 12. 
13, 14, when I really start to do things on my own. I created my first investment club. I was 15 years old. It didn't do well. I mean, it did okay. We just, you know, I had a two, 300 euro a month. Uh, I was doing a small job. And then my friend, each of them had two, 300 euro a month. And we get 20, 20 of us. And we went to a bank and we wanted to start a, an investment fund. And we created a junior club. And But before that time, I, I, I don't have any fond memory of my life. I think my life started to happen when I started to to be very proactive. So boundless amount of energy to, to I guess, exist, you know, find my way into this world. Uh, thing I matter, probably, right? Thing I, I'm, I want to be someone, I, I am someone, and I'm, and also being with, uh, finding the flow with people I, I met. Um, every time I would meet someone, I'm like, I get super excited intellectually by so many things. And that sort of become my journey sometimes. As you mentioned, anything, anything that sort of approach fun and, and exciting and joyful, I want on it. I'm pretty jealous um, about some of the things you've already accomplished in your life. And I always felt I've lived a couple of different lives already where, where I even attribute big changes, major changes in my personality, where I feel like, well, I was that person and it was a similar personality, but definitely not the same person in the same body where I'm right now. But I feel, and maybe this is something is wrong with me, right? So maybe I should, should help seek help for this. But I feel like there is not just an, a small evolutionary or incremental change in my personality. I felt over time I, I've been a different person and I interacted differently with the world, which drove me to different things, which, and I think I, I can see this with with, the, with what you've done. I was exposed to role models. I was really became focused on something. I really tried that out, see if there was a certain trajectory I could attach myself to, um, really ran down this rabbit hole. And a couple of years later, it was just boring to myself, to me, right? I, I didn't want to explore it any further. And uh, I, I'm curious, the, was that something that kind of, where you grew up when you were young, people were kind of expecting of you, there were other people like you, your friends, or you felt like alone with this and you felt like, well, I'm the only one in this whole school or high school who, who has that problem, so to speak? Uh, two things actually happened. It seems that because I was a very friendly guy and I'm still a very friendly and a very social guy, I need to have a, a group of friends and people I talk to um, often. So I would get always with a group of people and I would uh, usually um, uh, influence them to follow my path, to do like me. So when I became a comedian, many people became a comedian. When I went to finance, many people went to finance. Now I'm creating a startups. Uh, a new uh, a new thing for me. Some people are thinking of quitting the job and creating a startup. But what I found is, so I feel when I'm doing something with new people, they are on board with me until I change. And then again, I start over, which means it's so interesting. The bulk of people that were with me with the, the, the past life, I mean, the, the last seven years, I was mostly a a leadership coach, uh, you know, inspirational events producer, happiness coach. But everything was in the realm of coaching, let's say, inspirational speaking. And now that I'm, I want to do a tech startup, uh, 
people don't get it, right? My actor friend don't get it. My 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 coach friend don't get it. Why are you going to take? You were a good leadership school coach. You you get yeah. your conference. You, why are you doing something else? And what I've seen is every single time I change, the bulk of people don't get it. Like eighty percent. And I'm like, it's incredible. I mean, I, I, I find a way to get in every time. And and they love me when I get in this world. Why? It's, they, they embrace me, the new people, right? Why? It's great. You get, you have a new energy coming from a, a very different background. Welcome to the family. Until I leave. And then why do you leave? And I see that every time it happens, it's fascinating the, how, how humans are made, but they just... People love comfort so much and they love, you know, just like a, a tribe. I've spent some time with tribes in, uh, in Tanzania with the Maasai and in Ecuador as, as well. I spent three weeks with a tribe there. And what I've studied a lot how native tribe works. It's fascinating. In terms of happiness, on average, on average, right, they're happier than us. Yet, of course, they're not innovative or creative as us because in order to be innovative, you know that you live in San Francisco, you need to bring people from different backgrounds and culture. Right? And then innovation comes and creativity comes. But then for the group to stay joyful, actually, you don't want too many people from different backgrounds or you don't want people to leave, which is fascinating enough. I mean, I was talking to the young girl of this uh, the, the, this uh, incubator we are based in now, Bordeaux. She's from Corsica. She's, I think she, she must be like 24, 25. And now after a couple of years here in France, she wants to go back to Corsica, right? It's gorgeous. I mean, Corsica is a beautiful island. But I would think, you know, uh, she would want, you know, to explore Europe and, and do her own thing. No, it's so much more... You know, it's community-based. People want to be community-based. So it goes against the grain to keep changing. And every time someone leaves the group, it's like I'm betraying them, right? It's yeah. fascinating. Yeah, but I, for me, I, I, I keep I going. I'm, yeah, yeah I'm, I, I, this is an observation that I fully share. And what, what I find most incredible is that, say, you, you get into a group and the group appreciates this tribe, appreciates your prior experience. They really appreciate it. You've been yeah. exposed to lots of different narratives. You've been around the world. Yeah. You've been in different startups, so to say, to, or you've been in different industries. And that's yeah. a great value. And yeah. they love you for this, right? For your right. diverse experience. Yeah. But here's the killer. If, you, if you're part of that new group, right? And you, you, you hang out with them for quite some time. You're successful or you're just part yeah. of it. You're really friendly yeah. like you are. Yeah. But then you go somewhere else and they will say, well, yeah. you, you can't change, right? This is too risky. Why are you doing this? It's like yeah. your parents. You're like, no, no, but listen, I, I'm good jumping between different yeah. worlds. This is what I'm yeah. doing. But they can't see that. They can't follow you. Okay. Maybe intellectually sometimes, but emotionally, as you say, they feel it's betrayal. Yeah. And um, when I when when I left uh, Europe, I grew up in Europe. I lived there until I was 20 years old. 20 years I, old. And in Germany. And my family and the people I know from that time, they all feel the sense of betrayal. Even if I'm still friends with them, they feel like, man, why didn't you come back? Why don't you, why didn't you stay? And I'm like, you know, this, this doesn't fit my personality. You know that because otherwise we wouldn't be friends. And so they are like creative people, you know, the intellectuals, but they can't really understand that this is necessary in order to build myself. And I think you have exactly the same issue is that we, we go from this one tribe to another and we, we, we can speak the language 
of these other tribes. Yeah. And I don't know if you listen to Alexander Bard, he, he has this idea of shamans, where people, certain part of the population, four or five percent of the population, and wherever you go, it goes between the tribes. And uh, that's also true in, in, in hunter-gatherer societies, where a part of that population is kind of the diplomat that goes to other tribes, negotiates deals, are traders, and they kind of live outside the community. And it's kind of not well-researched how this happened. Obviously, we need those people, and we always needed them, but I don't know how the imprint on our personality actually happened, because it seems like this comes from our DNA. It's not something where we one day said, oh, I read a book, and then I decided I have to go. I already knew I wanted to go, but then the book, like Jim Rogers, really helped me. He's like, man, you can go around the world, and it's really not that hard if you put some effort to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, and. So we just uh, left uh, after 10 years in New York. We, uh, so we settled down in Bordeaux. And even here, when someone heard the other day that I will probably go somewhere else again in two, three years, I'm like, but I thought that's it. You, you've been around the world. You've tried everything. I thought that, that's it. You decide now to settle down. I'm like, no, I hope not. I hope never. I hope I have at least 10, 20 life inside of me until I die. Oh, my God, I want to explore now. It's great. It's great to have a three-year-old sound so it's great to be based in bordeaux amazing quality of life and i'm enjoying the wine cheers <laughs> so it's a great place but we'll see in three four years what do you think going back to europe now i i always loathe that moment i kind of don't want to do it i've been here for 20 years and i i for all its faults and especially san francisco which is a really weird town um a really weird people sometimes for all, for all its faults and boom and bust cycles I feel really home in the U.S. And you lived for, for a long time in the U.S. How do you feel going back and how do people react to you when you tell them your story? Right. So it's uh, many times it's a cultural shock. I mean, it's uh, I was, uh, you know, I mean, young investment, uh, you know, young VC based in Bordeaux, they, you know, 30, 32 years old. And I was pitching my, my new project. The apps, the, they had absolutely no idea what I was talking about, right? It's a personal growth platform we want to do, sort of like mindvalley.com. But they didn't get it. They didn't know anything, leadership coaching. And they, and then the call after I had was with a, a big investor in Dubai. And the guy is McKinsey, KPMG, numbers guys, yet totally get me, no, understand the... the the, the 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 business acumen I have and you understand the the world I'm going into personal growth business totally get it and I'm like I'm much closer to this Arab guy based in Dubai finance guy than those young French people we are much closer in mind right he, he gets my journey so it's a it's a cultural shock especially the risk I don't know much about Germany right I I know a little bit, not too much. I can't speak for Germany and the rest of Europe. I can only speak for France. There is absolutely no notion of risk, right? It is the, the failing is like the, the, the most horrific thing you can do in your life. So people don't jump into a new career, new journey until they're absolutely sure. I mean, the, the French system used to be brilliant, the education system, not so much now anymore. But still, 15 years ago, we're still ranked one of the best in the world. But they would only jump in a career where they know they had either a family background or friends or the grade or the right school to get in. 
and and still now it's fascinating as a i see i see a gap of course with young people right under 28 years old it seems there, there's sort of a commonalities between young french or german or pakistanis and they're much more whatever they're much more go-getters but the the the, the, the average french person has no notion of reinventing yourself risking um uh, and there is a um something i was telling myself the other day here la bienséance est plus importante que la bienveillance ou le risque means la bienséance means all the politeness is much more important how you sit how you speak how you dress how your hair is much more important than what you do who you are as a person it's fascinating my wife was american she's american japanese you know i've lived four years in japan before meeting her i'm a big fan of anything japan and uh, um she's she loves she has no idea how france is as amazing when it comes to quality of life she's like the french you really know how to live yet it's so difficult in the business world she has no she, i mean she only worked in la and new york before right so of course she worked in the two most business places in the world people are so professional um and here she's like french are so nitpicking right nitpicking just what is wrong with you what is wrong with you never never something good in the business world in the day in the professional life yet when it's time to enjoy yourself it's fun and right there is a degustation right here testing right in this taking cubeta today right of course and sometimes someone bring cheese and at 4 p.m everyone is eating cheese and it's cliche but so true we see every single day which we come back i i think when, when, when I think of Europe, I think of it as a fortress, and a fortress in the sense of it has these ideals often many hundred years old, and they barely change the, the pressure that competition exerts on us in the US. And I would include the UK to some extent there. The UK is probably in between continental Europe and the US in terms of development. There isn't the same competitive pressure, there are much fewer role models, and the amount of early adopters is pretty small. They exist. Um, so you go to Berlin and there is a good amount of early adopters. But I, I had a startup in Germany. The problem is, yes, you can build a startup, but there's literally nobody you can sell to in a 2000 mile radius. Now you can go to the US and sell there, but most likely there is someone in the US doing exactly what you're doing as a startup already. So it's going to be a tough challenge for you coming out of Europe to sell it. It can be done like Spotify and there's a bunch of companies who, who actually, actually excelled at that. And I I think also the Sambo brothers, they accepted that model, that they have good engineering, they, they have great people in Berlin right there. But the markets for them often in Nigeria, they're in Pakistan, but all the tech and actually the infrastructure, the payment infrastructure, that's all run from Berlin. So there is models you can build around that. But I think the, the whole idea of you have several lives, you have several careers, um, that doesn't go into European minds because the idea is that basically the society around you and your parents and your heritage, they determine who you are. It's not you, you're like a cog in the machine, right? So the idea that we are made in the image of God, yeah, we, we pretend in Europe to be Christian, but it doesn't go that far, right? It's basically, yeah, Christianity gave us the rules and then we, we live by the rules, but why we have those rules, please don't talk about that. And please don't talk about you have, you're being made in the image of God and you have enough freedom. That 
beyond like you know really highly proclaimed um, human rights that Europeans always talk about, they don't really understand freedom of the mind and they don't want to understand because everybody, and I think they keep saying that when you go to a new country, there's two kinds of travelers, the ones who arrive relatively fresh, they smile a lot and they're happy and they explore everything. And you see the, in many countries, um, the people who stay quite a bit longer and they've been cut down on their knees, right? So the, the locals have told them, you can't do this, you can't do this. And they, but they were, you know, in that, in that society. So the countries escape like other travelers who only go through. And they say the same is true in Europe. Most people who actually lived in Europe, they're kind of jealous for other people who could have these other opportunities or could be outside the pond, so to speak. And they don't really want to hang out with them too much because they, they, they kind of are reminded of their jealousy. Like they don't, I'm not saying they're evil people, I'm just saying they, they feel something is missing in their life and something they would have wished for and they could have only, they feel in their mind, could have achieved when they were younger. Right. And they don't want to be reminded of that. So they, they avoid people who are like that and they kind of make them a pariah so they don't have to worry about that anymore. At least yeah, that's yeah. how it works in, in, in Germany, which is a very close-minded society. Yeah. They're very good at doing what they're doing, but they don't want to look beyond that. Yeah, yeah. I, I see part of my family is very conservative. And, and for them, you know, when I talk about open-mindedness and traveling and inclusion, diversity, for them, it's if you change or if it means you don't like us, you hate us. <laughs> It's actually, it seems this simple idiot equation for them, right? You lack other things, therefore you don't like us. And it's, uh, I mean, there's a part of my family, I can't even exchange words anymore. It's just, we are so much into, uh, yeah, diversity and inclusion and, uh, you know, all colors, all whatever, just as long as people are good and they, they, are, they have energy. That's what. That's all I'm looking for. Like someone with good energy, wanting to do stuff. Um, that's what matters. I mean, that's you know, uh, there's, a, there's a there's a French sentence: "Rentrer en communion d'esprit." I guess you know, find find commonality. But it's 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 said in a much more beautiful way. It's. I think this is what you know. All of us are after, right? I mean, if you, if you talk to me about happiness, I think it's just you know. Belong belong to somewhere where we should all be one. I think for me, it's it's such so much for happiness where we understand that there is so much jewel inside of us, and then we just you know it's cliche, simple, but it's funny. The more I'm doing research, the more I talked about it, the more I write about it, the more the more I'm going for simplistic things. You know, it's true, but we are all one, and there's so much fascinating thing in each other, and why not discovering it all? Why not going around the world and getting the best from San Francisco or Tanzania or anything? You know, I can't wait to, to, to take my son and maybe, you know, go and live in Africa again or Asia. Or we'll go back to America at some point, of course. But why not living with uh, every beautiful energy uh, on this earth, right? There's so much things to experience and not, not to take, but just to experience to be in communion with, uh, to feel the flow, feel the flow of life. I like how you phrased this, and I think you're onto something great there. I know you spent the last couple of years really deep diving on happiness and where it comes from. And I want to learn more about it. I know you went to a bunch of different countries. Um, I, I know you researched um, tribes that have that look way more traditional, that live kind of in the Stone Age. Where do you 
how do you define happiness? A lot of people think differently what it actually is. And where do you feel you've seen the most happiness or the most surprising happiness in people's eyes? Right. So, of course, after researching so much, talking so much about it, trying to experience as much of it, for me, it comes down to two things, either the personal happiness or happiness at work. It's either searching, creating, looking, appreciating joy, right? everything around joy. So either you find it, you appreciate, you look for it, but joy is very much part of your life. And because there's so much suffering in the world and Buddhists would say it's all about suffering, because of that, because it doesn't mean there is not that, because of the suffering, looking for purpose. And for me, that's it. And every single day for my life, too, is as long as there is joy, I appreciate and I'm grateful for all the joy I, I, can, I encounter, uh, encounter, provide, gather, observe, and all the purpose I can find or all the purpose I can give to other people. So when I can give impact to people and I help someone on their own journey, right? And for me, if you get this to cover, right, so many other things. But if you get cover the appreciation, gratitude for joy and the ability to look, understand, share your purpose, you are, you are on your way, I think, to happiness. Do you think happiness is a bit of a fleeting emotion? You, you, you just connected it to joy. Yeah. And it seems like it's something that people, it's a bit like a drug. Like it's a drug, we, we don't actually put something in our veins, but it's something that our brain yeah. produces and makes us happy in that moment. And it's kind of a quick fix, right? There's some, yeah. some, some, so I, some high that we get, but right. it's, maybe not healthy it's not something long-term that's a lot of what a lot right. of people would say right it's a short-term right. emotion but it doesn't right. guide us long-term right uh right T totally as long as again you appreciate joy but it's not the bulk it's not the core of your life right for me as long as long purpose for me is much more the core right the ability to give to give meaning to what happens around you to what happens to you to happen what happens to the world, if and again, so so many people don't understand, you know, what I've been doing in corporation as a chief happiness officer. They they they, they always think it's all about joy and, and and just joy. And I say no, no, but joy it is important. Like to appreciate, to be grateful. Yet the most important thing, of course, is purpose, right? Otherwise, this is why uh, uh, this is why so many people are depressed right now, right? And I'm not depressed. It's just what happened around the world now, the COVID. And yeah, it kills some of us business and it makes people not so joyful. Yet there's a purpose. All of us are finding more purpose for COVID. So in a way, I'm extremely happy for life to give us one more reason uh, to, to bring purpose. The other day, I was uh, every, every Saturday morning, I uh, host a room on Clubhouse, uh, on personal growth, one in French, and I'm starting now on Sunday in English to host a room sometime on Conscious Tech, 
which is a new field. We can talk about this. It's a very emerging field. But when it comes to personal growth, I was invi- I invited this young 20 years old Frenchman. And in Bordeaux, believe it or not, he got kidnapped a month ago by an old man wanting to ransom, ransom him to his parents. He was just walking to the streets. I mean, we're not in Bogota here. We're in Bordeaux, very safe. So it happened everywhere. And the guy, you know, he was just a normal guy, normal Bordeaux young guy. And he said, my life got changed. I got traumatized. I'm like, I can die? And all the notion of safety. And I told him, listen, I've coached so many people. I'm telling you, it's a great thing happened to you. Really be thankful. You have to be so grateful for life, even if it was a traumatic event. And obviously you're fine now. You're not in your bed. You're working. He's, he's got an internship. Uh, because you've got, you're asking yourself all the right questions about life now. What is my purpose? What do I want to do? How do I want to uh, live my life? What opportunity am I missing or could I be doing? You're asking yourself now at 20 years old. It's perfect. If you can combine your 20s with having a good time, going out, joy again, and finding your purpose, finding your next thing, being what I call being in connection with the world. I mean, connection with with Earth, with what's happening, being uh, conscious, really the world. I mean, it took me a few words, a few years to to understand the importance of the word conscious. But really, to be conscious of what you do, what you say, how you feel, and sharing. And he was like, yeah, I think you're right. I think I'm grateful for this experience. And he was realizing on the moment, as he was sharing the story on Clubhouse, right now for his thing, he was just, I need to get over the trauma. I need to get over the trauma of almost dying and being kidnapped. No, no. Be grateful for what that story gave you now. I know. Right now, I, I think if, if anything sticks from this podcast, it's going to be like kidnapping is actually a positive experience. That's what Arno told us. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. No, it's amazing how you, you look at these things and uh, you're absolutely onto something. We, we, we have those, those dearth of, of, of really challenging experiences in our lives, young or old, right? We live a comfort, comfortable life, but it seems extremely boring and repetitive. And it seems to be the void of human interaction. For better or worse, we have some Facebook thing, and you now have Clubhouse, which I think gives us a little bit of that, but it's kind of a, a fast food of human interaction. It's there, but it doesn't really make us as happy. Sure. And I'm, I'm curious what you think, how this is related. Maybe it's not at all. The, the question of not having a purpose, uh, or people feel they have less of a purpose, um, they are making and, and getting, getting on this journey of redefining their purpose. Is that related to people being less in love with religion? Let's put it this way. So the, the amount of at least Abrahamic religions, we, we might want to exclude Islam there. They've lost a lot of real followers. People might still say they're Christian, but they don't really think about Christianity anymore and where they come from on one hand. And then on the other hand, I feel there's so much in their work life changing, so much in their personal life is changing that they're kind of worried that their purpose is gone away and they have to redefine themselves. And that creates a lot of anxiety and makes people pretty miserable. That seems to be the, 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 the observation a lot of people can make right now. Right. I mean, first thing is, the, so question, the question of purpose for me is central to your thinking of happiness. Yet, 
yet I do not think, first of all, everyone needs to think about purpose. So one, I think it's a big part of happiness. I love it. I'm passionate about it. Yet, I don't think anyone, first of all, need to think about purpose. Some, and I have a friend of mine, in, in my, one of my best friends, actually. He, he has no, you know, except being a, a good dad, which is, which is his purpose, but he would never phrase it that way. You know, I think he brings a g- lot of good things to the world, just being a good dad. But the question of purpose, he just, it's way over his head, and he's 50 years old. And, and I really think people, some people are, are living a good life, happy, until, until, until they get basically a, uh, they're facing a wall, an obstacle they cannot overcome unless they think of purpose. So that's the first thing. Not everyone needs to think of purpose. And for those thinking of, for some of them, they need to think of purpose only when there's a crisis. On the, they just can't grasp, they can't come to terms with who they are. And then now with those who are actually thinking of purpose and it's making them miserable, then I go back to the first point which is forget purpose for a while. It's fine. Go to joy. I had the chance to work with many different uh, corporations, institutions. I've done a lot of work for the UN, all sorts of United Nations, UNHCR in Geneva, you know, uh, UNICEF in Iran. It's a crazy story. I was in Iran. I was waiting for my US citizenship, and I went in Iran when it was not super, it was not, not advised to go there when you're waiting for your papers. And I went there because the excitement of going to Iran was June 2019. Uh, a lot of stress there. And anyway, so I've, I've worked with different agencies of the UN. And what I've seen in, in those institutions and many foundations in the world where 80% of the, work, um, of the workforce had a very clear purpose Many of them forget about joy, right? And those people, I say, just forget, just leave, have fun, forget about your purpose. It's fine. It doesn't have to be there. First of all, it doesn't have to be there every time. It, can, it doesn't have to be there in your forefront. And your, 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 pers- your purpose can be absent from your life. And your purpose can change. It's fine. You don't need to be obsessed. So on one hand, I say it's all about, for me, joy and purpose, yet... Sometimes it's more about joy and sometimes it's more about purpose. Um, you, you know, you always go back to priority. What, what makes you happy, right? What is the, the one thing you need to get clear in your head that matters most to you to feel sort of uh, whole in touch with yourself, in touch of the world? You know, is it spending time with your kids? Is it working on your purpose? Is it making tons of money? And again, there is nothing wrong with it. Anything and there is not even a priority to have for everyone, but it seems in many cases having a priority and looking at your priority, yeah. what makes matter for me now, help you to get a bit clearer. So I don't know. It's a long answer to your question. I don't know if it makes sense, but hopefully it does. No, I love listening to you. Um, so, so one thing I've noticed in in my travels to to a ton of countries is that countries that are seen as poor, that seen have a lot of squalor, they turn out to be, and that's purely anecdotal evidence. I know surveys say differently, but from my anecdotal evidence, 
I felt that, especially, for instance, sub-Saharan Africa, yeah. there's a lot of happiness, there's a lot of joy in people's life. Um, when I went to Malawi, there were literally four-year-old, five-year-old kids um, taking the bus from one rural area, from one village to another yeah. to go to their daycare or to go to their first grade school. And there was nobody helping them. There were no parents around. There were no caretaker around. They literally, hand in hand, stood there, waited for the bus, and then the bus would come. And it must must be really safe. Otherwise, the parents wouldn't allow it. And it was just so amazing to see this army of children at 8 o'clock in the morning just strolling around the city, um, being very calm. Like, they weren't the children that, that I know in our daycares here that kind of run across the street and have feel right. like they're, yeah. they're invincible. No, they were they were like little adults but they were extremely yeah. cute yeah and uh, i i thought that's pretty amazing in a country where we think oh my gosh it's, it's really dangerous right malawi is being seen as a as a dangerous poor country which it is but it's it's kind of on a different level so i saw a lot of joy in in moments of despite the the poverty in moments of people's lives that i rarely see in the developed world when i go through san francisco yes there's a lot of great stuff here but People look super depressed. Now they have their masks on, they all only look down, they don't look anyone in the eye. They, all they want is just be left alone with their cloud world, right? Yeah. And I interpret this, and I might be wrong with this, but I think I'm onto something. Is I interpret this as their happiness and their, their, their overall path in life. There's something wrong with them. Maybe there isn't. They're probably very successful. They're probably um, making a lot of money, $150,000, doing whatever they're doing for a tech company. But from my point of view, it looks unhealthy. It looks like we are, I live in a mental institution, so to speak, and not in an in a up-and-coming successful city. Yeah, no, no. And uh, yeah, I, I have to say the same thing. I mean, I, I, 2011, that's when I started to do some storytelling coaching. And we were doing volunteering with my wife next to Moshi, next to the Kilimanjaro. And I had never seen a happier kid. I mean... They were so happy, and we didn't have kids at the time. With my wife and I, we I remember we, one of them, and because they were so poor, and one of them didn't really have parents taking care of her, she was like three or four. We asked the village, you know, could we maybe, you know, would she want to be adopted or something? If if there is a need, of course, just to provide. Maybe I don't know if it's a better future because we were seeing them so happy, and then we're like, oh my god, but they're so happy, but yet. Most of them, they're going to be just farmers. So with our, you know, white mind, maybe just think, oh, so maybe we can provide a good future. But then they, they seem so happy. So it's true that, but I've also studied and I spend a lot of time with Africans. Of course, it's not all roses, but while they were at school, I have to say, yeah, much happier than any kid we've seen anywhere. I mean, my, my son is three years old. We see the other kids. We were in New York and now in France, so we see they're not nothing like I've seen in Africa. Um, we same thing when I went. So um, I've seen the more joyful people in the most dangerous place too, and because maybe maybe it's, it's such resilient kid because they know how tough his life is. I mean, it's true. Like the the best time I had in my life, right, was uh, with people in Mexico, with people in. So in South Africa, in Cape Town, in the middle of the tribe, nowhere in Ecuador. And, and there were some tough things. We've seen some crazy thing in the tribes yet. Because not all tribes are happy yet. There is a, I don't know, it's because they, they, those people are used to see much more crazy, horrible thing from a young age. 
and the parents not baby them, right? Sheltering them that they, they, they have to see, they're forced to see the beautiful in the world. But to answer your question, yes, in the most dangerous place in the world, I've seen the happiest people, hands down, for sure, right? I've seen, I mean, the most miserable people I've seen in my life were in New York. And that's why I told my wife after 18 months in New York, I say, I don't want to stay. And we stay another eight years because she found a good job. And I say, okay, I'm going to work around the world. So are you okay to be, you know, maybe one third of your time alone? If you're okay, we stay, we stay in New York. I want you to be happy. So I was based in New York was, uh, while I was working across the world. Right? And I had my, uh, you know, it was a very balanced life like this. My wife was happy. I was happy. Uh, and, but every time I would go back to New York, I mean, people would just, you know, yeah, complaining and just with their amazing 200, 300, 400K job. Well, it was coming back from a country where nothing, and they just embraced me. I, mean, I went to Pakistan, and I was scared to death, you know, to be kidnapped or something. And, of course, they welcomed me with open arm, and many workshops I did. The, the poorest country treat me the, the best. We had the best experience. They really wanted to learn from me what I had to say, because... Probably because they know the value of something, you know, something that is good, something that is rare, right? I've seen it often and often. And then when you have, when you have everything, you don't want to go further. I mean, we see that in Bordeaux, such amazing quality of life. But yet, people, because of that, they're not as often as creative, as innovative. But we take the best from everywhere, right? We, my wife is okay. It's a three-year journey. We enjoy the wine. On weekends, and uh, and then we try to, you know, we'll try to, to find the like-minded people. Some in Bordeaux in the international community, and some overseas. So, so yeah, it's it's fascinating. The the the, the so happiness. I want to mention something else because so uh, there is something called the happiness DNA. I don't know if you if if you if you if you've seen that or came across that. It's a fascinating topic. So studies have shown, right, scientists, sociologists, philosophers, uh, those, those who have done data analysis, right? I've not done data analysis. All my experience is people have worked, the tens of thousands of people I've worked with. But all of those who've done data analysis, it seems there is a happiness DNA, which means some people are really, really born with the happiness genes, which means no matter where they're born in the world, what sort of parents they have, they will be happy, right? That's the people who, they lose a leg tomorrow, there's an, a car accident, and they, they, have, they have no more arms, whatever, and they're still fine. They lose all their money, or, you know, they, they're fine. They keep going, they, they, the resilience. I mean, we could almost call the resilience DNA, because the more I see the someone with without the resilience aptitude uh, can't be long-term happy. There is no long-term happiness. For long-term happiness, you need this ability to bounce back from drama, from failure, from trauma. Um, but I, I I have to say I keep I keep making a point that happiness, no matter how controversial it is, is important. 
right? Again, the way I, the way, anyway, the way I understand it, which is joy and purpose. And for this, yes, and it doesn't mean that you have to go after what only bring you joy and smile and money, because that was not the case of my life. I, you know, I, it's a really good one. Someone told me once, say, always look for effort, not comfort. It's a really good one. And, I, and I've looked for effort. I mean, I went to, it sounds fun, but I went to tribes of Tanzania or Pakistan, and sometimes it was tough. But the excitement of, 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 of seeing how I could over, overcome the obstacle or overcome the cultural difference or find a way to get to their heart was much more fulfilling to just stay within a comfortable life. And basically when I, uh, you know, when I, I was 29 years old, when I had been back to France, I had a really good job as a, I was the head of a finance communication company, investor relation and, you know, nice apartment and beautiful office in Paris. And I remember I was going to turn 30 and I'm like, oh my God, I'm getting very comfortable once again, financially and set group of friends. If I don't change now, that's it, I'm stuck. And that's when I decided to go to America and try my, my hand at acting. And fact, thanks God I did it. Just, I see my friend who stayed in Paris and stayed just in finance. So I, we, we have nothing in common anymore. That's it. They just have, a, no matter how successful they are, they just have this one view of the world. And, and they, they, yeah, we, it's really hard to communicate. They don't have this capacity to, I guess, put themselves into other people's shoes or they just, they really see the world as one thing. And, and you and I, I think of this thing, I mean, I barely know you, but from what I read about you, and you have this fascinating, uh, fascinating, um, uh, you, you are fascinated by this sort of a, uh, continuous improvement of yourself and your ideas. You try to challenge your ideas. What else is different? I mean, I, you know, I, I, I was invited on French TV uh, by, by um, a guy who absolutely think everything I say is bullshit about happiness. And, and I, I asked them, bring him, bring him back. I want a third round, two rounds. And he brought his argument, brought mine. And I said, I want to, I want to meet him again. And he's gonna, you know, it's gonna make me just a stronger, stronger guy into what I believe. And the guy is just so firm in thinking that there is no place for happiness at work, right? Because it's part of the work I do, right? I work on personal transformation, but I also work in the importance of happiness at the workplace. And for me, it, it's it's all about having meaningful, respectful conversation being safe, right? What Google call psychological safety. That's what basically happiness at work is. It's just you are safe to be yourself. You are safe to be an emotional person sometimes with constraints at work. But basically it's just about being yourself. I mean, 90% of people are not themselves. They're living on autopilot. They're just this big executive uh, woman I'm coaching in Bordeaux and she's 50 years old, very successful career. And now she's realizing she has no idea what, 
what her life has been about. She has no understanding, no self-awareness of her decision, her style, her rhythm in life. And, and I'm like, you know, what a shame, right? Of course, I'm coaching her and, I'm, and, I have, and I have compassion and I'm helping her. But I'm like, what a shame. She spent 30 years since she went to the university just on autopilot, right? She had a, a good career, but what was, what was it for? I think you're, you're, you're really showing that one of those major issues of our society. And I, I feel sometimes we are this, this weird cult, you know, this Old Testament cult that broke up from the rest of humanity and just became these hive people. We, we, we can barely exist in the wild anymore. I don't think any one of us can. You know, they have a TV show where one guy exists in the wild. That used to be the default setting, right? So this is when you look at Alone, the TV show I love there is a winner and he typically makes it 90 days without any external help and in his own little um, shelter. But it's something that was a default um, to an extent, a default um, survival mechanism for us all. And if we would only last 90 days, that's a pretty terrible score, right? We were talking about 60, 70, 80 years. There's more people around us, but still, you know, you lived in tiny, tiny groups. And I feel this, this cult that we created has been very successful in in moving their lifestyle towards technology into a, a cultish belief in technology. And I think we, we went through different stages and Christianity was a, was a stage in between. And now we are getting closer to, you know, AI probably, this is like the core belief in that, in that, in that uh, row of religions and the sequence of religions that we've been building and that drove us there. And what we've lost, and I think we, we're just not in, in harmony with nature and, the DNA that we have imprinted wants us to be in harmony with that, and we're absolutely not. I mean, our life doesn't resemble this. It's it's a comfortable life, and there's a lot of technology in it for, for better. I think most of us wouldn't give it away. And we all want our coffee. We all want good wine. We want good olive oil. So there's a lot of technology that helps us, but it has really messed with our mental health. And I'm not sure there is. I think the the world goes through these cycles of self-help, right? So it seems to be this happiness maybe isn't really teachable. You said earlier there isn't DNA for some people who are always happy, irrespective of what happens. So them, right, they go to war, they lose all limbs and they're still good. But I, I think there's 95, 99% of the population, they don't have that gene. And the question is if, if we can teach them, if we can appeal to their consciousness and make them happy that way. Oh, and I think this was the solution so far that we kind of, and you just had that example with the, with the women, the executive who has been in a company for so long. I think what we've been doing, we've been drawing up these role models. We told people, this is what you should do. I mean, if you had a choice, you know, and especially in Europe, that's very popular. You have a choice of 10 to 20 different models and you decide when you're 18, you can't switch because once you look outside of that, that little box that was made for you, you're in trouble because then you're not motivated anymore. You don't fulfill your role anymore. And I think this is the European system. I think it's also very popular in Eastern Asia. You, you drop these people in the box and then by, by the time they retire, they realize, oh, crap, this box were artificially made. I never reached my potential. But I also never had to face the serious questions of life, right? She's probably at that age now that she's starting to realize that. But for most of us, the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s are filled with children and bliss, but bliss in the sense of we are unaware of our potential lives. And I think this is where the internet now comes in. It raises all these questions. We have time to think about it. We have you know, productivity already went up, be a little richer. And now we all wonder, oh man, what is actually my potential? What I want to see the world. I want to see how other people interact with the world, what they're up to. And then I want to choose all the best things that make me a better person. And 
I, I want to do this in, a, in a, as positive manner as possible. And I think a lot of today's confusion stems from this. So we, we're realizing these boxes might have been actually beneficial to us, but they weren't, they weren't ideal for us. So the decision that we could make is always better than someone else makes for our future for the next 30 or 40 years. And uh, that will take a couple of years, right, to, to deal with this. It will take the next 20, 30, 40 years to deal with that. Yeah, to your point of having different models, role models, you know, and not to be uh, uh, in the box. Uh, uh, first of all, there's a funny anecdote. I was in China in 2009. I spent one year there and I was directing a comedy movie, but I also had a grant for the, from the Chinese government. And I was start trying to study Chinese two hours a day. And I still remember my Chinese teacher. And she was like, because I could never do the kanji within the box, right? You get those small square box when you, when you repeat the kanjis. And I said, I can't, this, the box is too small. And she told me, maybe Arnaud, in your life, it's time to learn to be in a box. And, and, and she was not even making joke. It was, it was her reality. And she could not even, she could not understand. I could not draw and so much my personality. You cannot put me in a box, even my writing, right? Second thing is the importance of showing different models to young people. We built, I don't know if you've seen, but we've built an event, my wife and I, called Stand Up for Passion. We did this event across the world for seven years, right? Until COVID hit, of course. And what we did is uh, we would take seven personalities, seven different stories, stories of transformation, I would cast those people. We would coach them on how to tell the story in public. And we would present seven people, seven minutes each. No PowerPoint behind, no photography. So it was like a TED Talk, but deeper. And it was not about a story that can change the world, but a story that have changed you. And I mean, I've been consumed by this event of mine. We were barely making any money, but... The rest of my life basically was helping me to finance that dream of mine, right? And when I was doing corporate work, I, was, I, could, I could finance those almost self-finance events, even if we had some, uh, some sponsor. And what we saw was every time in the seven people we would cast, the, 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 the amount of diversity in their life story, in, not only in their life story, but the way they approach the world, every single time the biggest takeaway the audience would take, you know, an average of 250, 350 people in the room would say, oh, my God, it's amazing how there is no one way of doing something. Every time. I mean, it's like, yeah. And I was like, yeah, obviously, duh, there's not one way. But it's such a reminder for most people. There is not one way of doing something. And even... Where you are, for instance, San Francisco, a friend of mine, very, very smart guy, um, had been in San Francisco for what, 20 years or so, and he was not doing so well. At some point, I mean, he had like two, three times he had been CEO of top startups in the video games industry, and he was doing well. And then, I don't know, about eight years ago, it started to, it, it, was, it, was, it was not working for him anymore. But he did not want to get out of San Francisco. He's like, I oh, know I'm a tech guy. I have to stay here. But he was miserable. And thanks God, last year he moved. 
He's somewhere else in the States, enjoying his life. He's got a new work. He was, in his mind, he only has to stay in San Francisco, right? It's like a fashion guy, only wants to stay in Paris or an engineer at MIT, whatever you name it. And, and those people say, you know, it can only be there, right? Or, or something else is, there is only one outcome possible. I fail or I win. So many people, when they enter a journey, that's why they don't enter, because they only see, only see this by the, uh, the, 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 the cognitive bias that it's either a win or a lose. I'm, I'm taking the, 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 my own example. So we're starting a new project, right? Starting New Manava. We, we online two more live. It's a personal growth platform. And of course, I'm building so it can be a very successful website. And I think we're going to do well. But in the back of my mind, I know because I've been it so many times that no matter what, I'm going to learn so much about myself, the world, people I'm going to meet through that. It's going to be amazing. And whatever, something going to happen because of that, which is totally unexpected for me. And it's going to make me grow. And I do not know what it is now. For instance, when I choose to become a, I know, crazy, right? A happiness specialist, 2014. I mean, it was a crazy idea, right? I, we are in February, March, 2014. And I say, I'm going to be a chief happiness officer. I send an email to 2,000, my, to, my 2,000 contacts around the world. No one answered. No one, no one. A guy took me out for lunch in New York where I was living at the time. And a, a French guy, a French uh, entrepreneur. And he's like, so tell me about this happiness thing you're doing now. What, what, what is this? And, and, I, and I explained to him, you know, when I found my happiness, I went to tribes and tried different things. And I think people should be happy and even in company. After I had explained to him for 30 minutes, He's like, okay, okay, I get it. It makes sense. I thought you went nuts. I thought that's it. I know he's nuts. He's tried everything in his life, and now he wants to be a happiness coach. And, and I'm like, okay, so you're not crazy. And, and he probably what was the, and he probably verbalized what 90% of my connection. I don't, I don't, I know, I don't think, I, maybe that's, San Francisco reflecting on me but at some point I feel like being crazy is a good thing yeah. so the, the, the definition of mental health is obviously you conform to the average there is no other definition there isn't we right. don't have like psychologists don't really have a picture of what's healthy they only compare you to the average right. and you clearly are not in the average right. um, bell curve right so you're somewhere right. in the extremes of that distribution so I don't think the the, the the immediate thought pattern would be you are crazy. And I think you should take it as a compliment. Yes. And yeah. yes, maybe yes, there's a real reason yeah. behind it why you do this and it's logical. But in the end, it's going to take forever to explain this, right? So either people will eventually get it and they will realize, boy, you were onto something years before they even thought about it. Or maybe you were just crazy and that's okay too, right? So a lot of crazy people did some amazing work in their life, right? Yeah. There's a lot of artists and there's philosophers yeah. and there's authors yeah. who are definitely not in the average. And I think this is good. Will we just, well, I had this discussion, um, I think it was with Simon and we talked about, well, why do we still have sociopaths? Why do we have psychopaths? Why do we have lots of criminals? 
and also crazy people, right? Why are they, after so many, many years of, of, of selection, we've selected positively for the people who are seemingly not crazy, but we still seem to have the same percentage of crime. It doesn't really change over the generations. So it seems like there is something good in all these people. And while this sounds a little crazy, right, because you, San Francisco is a city where nothing is enforced. Everyone runs around and takes fentanyl on, right on the streets, and my kids see that. On the other hand, I feel maybe it isn't so bad, right? Maybe it's it, this is growing up and seeing reality as it really is and not being coddled and just looking at, you know, an ivory tower. Maybe there is something to it. But I'm, it's hard to see that at some point. I'm really worried by it. And I'm really curious, maybe we can, we can go there um, about your time in Hollywood. I think everyone in Silicon Valley, rich billionaire Mark Benioff, or not so rich, dreams about going to Hollywood, which seems to be the one thing everyone wants to do. And it seems to be impossible to hack. There's a lot of money that's being burned, usually Silicon Valley money. YouTube brings a lot of money, then it's being burned in Hollywood and nothing ever comes back. So Hollywood seems to be this culture sect that creates this new religion. We have, we have moved it so far up in our, our way of thinking, but money is only produced by relatively few people in Hollywood, a really small old boys club, old boys network. Now it's not just boys, but it's a relatively shielded insider club. How did you get to Hollywood? How did they receive you? What did you learn from your couple of years of experience there? So Hollywood was so important to me that now, now every single day I have sort of created a mantra for myself. And I go through the letters of the alphabet from A to Z. And each letter means something. So when I get to C, I think of California and I'm like, I'm forever grateful for what I learned in LA about stage and storytelling. I mean, we can talk, I spent six years there, right? For me, I mean, let's start from this. What I got out of, of, of California is first, yeah, I'm, I'm grateful for having the guts to live there. I went there for, with, I don't know, maybe what, 15,000 euro in my pocket at the time from France. Uh, right, that's all my saving at the time as a young French executive. Uh, not much, and and you know, I took the guts. I had a good career in France to go and live there. So I'm grateful for having taken a risk. Then, what I learned there on stage. I mean, I was mostly I did a lot of things. I was a I was a director and screenwriters and actors. I was on Gilmore Girls and a few episodes and a bunch of commercials and many more independent movies. But the bulk of my time, my career in Hollywood, spent on stage doing stand-up comedy. And uh, for me, what I got as a stand-up comedian was a way to connect to people. Fascinating. A way to, I guess, to, to feel what the room feel like, what people think of me. You know, so the more, the, the, the more you, you get into people's mind, what they, the more you think about you and you like and don't like, but at least you have a, a face value, what they but the sense of you, right? Whether it's positive or negative. And it, for me, that was the best school in order to connect to people. I can talk for hours and hours on the world of comedian because I know it well, but so not every comedian brings back that to life, of course. And many of them, they are great when they're on stage and outside of stage life is a mess. Actually, I would say for 90% of them, Maybe it's one of the reasons I left comedy. But for me, what I learned on stage on how to connect to people is probably the best thing I've done in my life. The, the school of life 
you know, and when you start, and I was a French guy, so with this French accent, making jokes in English, and some people wondering, what, what is he doing? What is he saying? And, and then, you know, after, after a few months, I get the gist and I get my, you know, how to construct my jokes and, and I get them. And, I, and, and the, the level of emotional connection I had with those people is, you know, was, is, it's as high when I do a good coaching. There's very, in terms of emotional connection, I don't know, you know, there's maybe when, you, when you're on stage, when you may be making love, or when you are coaching for me, when you're coaching someone, you're really helping or helping her to understand his or her life and, and really making a, 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 a switch, a conscious shift. For me, the intellectual connection, I mean, intellectual and heart connection I have the public was something amazing. And once you touch that as a comedian, it's just, you, you really, you, you touch gold. And this is why many comedians, you know, they addict to stage and even they don't, 99% of them don't make any money. They just, every night to get this 20 minutes of connection with the public is just phenomenal. So what I've learned about myself, the world, uh, you know, the, to learn the culture of a, of a country, there's nothing like stand-up comedy, right? To, to, to learn where America is at now. If you go to France and you listen to French comedy, or, and I bet it's the same in German comedy. Um, so what it's I learned... Such thing is German comedy. We all know that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, I know a guy who does, who does comedy in German, actually. I'd like to see this one. Uh, so... I would love to study, for example, even if I don't speak German, I would love to have a translation because it really gives you a, a nine to the country. It gives you like an entry point into the, the, the cultural mindset of the country. So first of all, what I learned in comedy in terms of connection to people, storytelling, of course, the art of, of, of making a story, of, of building up the emotional stage. So I've coached hundreds and hundreds of people uh, doing public speaking, I was a, I was a jury uh, just this very Saturday on the best French, if you want, public speaking persona, and it was fascinating how you see so much personality when someone speak on stage. Um, I mean, we we can talk for that. It's it's another topic on the stage persona. So I learned about stage and and and, and storytelling so much. And then the craziness of Hollywood, yes, getting into movie and acting, and because there is no logic there. At least in the business world, at some point, if you do things right, if you hire the right salesperson, you you pivot enough, you're gonna make an entry point. I mean, there is you can sell. You 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 might not be Bill Gates or, or, or Elon Musk, but you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna find a way around. Hollywood, there's no such thing. There's no logic, right? It's 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 a it's a mix of talent. It's a mix of a, of luck, of encounters, but it's fascinating for that. I mean, I I I do miss LA. For me, it's for me, it's it, it fits my personality, right? I would love to still be based in LA. I love the creative minds I found. Actually, for who I found the best. My the most creative guy is a German guy, Werner Herzog. Yeah. Right? The director, I love this film. I've read, I've seen every single of his film, I think. 
I think there's maybe one on IMDb I've not seen. I think like I think he's made 25 movies. And the guy said himself, I've seen him speaking on stage, and he said, for me, it's a very creative town. It's a what contrary on what people think, and they think it's a superficial town. Whatever. It is also a superficial town. And there's so many reasons of that, because many actors and creative persons are lost soul. They really lost soul. They're people with a good heart at the beginning. They want to be in touch. They want to be... They want so much to connect to people that you know they lose themselves they go to drugs and and, and and crazy sex or just be used and because they just so want to be recognized yeah? and and you know, i yeah. didn't lose myself but i certainly had that drive to i wanted to be i wanted to be heard i wanted to be seen and 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 and, and, and i I, st- I remember the day I had this feeling it's a country of a lost soul. I was in a party and I was talking to this gorgeous girl and she was like late 30s. And, you know, she had passed this point where most likely she's never going to succeed in LA. And, 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 and she probably had come with so many dreams and a, a beautiful and naive heart. And which I think for me is a, a great thing to have. But you know, it, it was like she was going like I've seen so many guys and on the way down. She used her 20s and early 30s to try to be someone and be seen and be heard and maybe doing the wrong thing. So now she was a bit sad and depressed. And even though she still had a beautiful face, her energy was so sad, right? It was just like, oh. And it's really, for me, it's a, it's a, it's a city of lost soul. And then you have those sharks and business guys going around and using it but then there's also the most beautiful jewels because they still make amazing movies that make you think and change the world and i mean i don't know if you saw the movie the the last disney movie called soul Uh, no no it's unbelievable it's a it's a cartoon movie it's on netflix yeah netflix I think it's on Netflix. Oh, no, I guess it's on Disney Channel, right? It must be on Disney Channel. It cannot be on Netflix. Uh, on the Disney, you know, Disney portal. Uh, it's anyway, find it. S O U L. It's just, oh my God. It's just, I mean, I love storytelling. It makes you move. Like you, you just, just forget the world where you are. With, and all of a sudden, everything makes sense for uh, 90 minutes. So I really love LA. I mean, I love. The creativity, the everything. After a few years in LA, everything else seemed easy. Like, I mean, I lived the LA thing, right? I, I was in the grinding, and I was doing, you know, stage at night and audition during the day, and trying to party at night, and and, and you know, and working out like everyone else at the gold gym, trying to look beautiful. So I've been to through the 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 you know, sequences of vanity and, and everything. So I, it's sort of an acceleration of life. And and in a way, you know, I can say I got it. I get it out of my system, part of it, not all of it. Um, so it's for me, it's a, it's a accelerating story of the world, of how people are. I mean, I love and, and I love to listen to the up and down of, of people in LA. They have, at least they live, right? 
and, and I can picture a friend of mine is, he must be now, this guy must be, I don't know how old is he, must be like 55 still, like, he must be like 55 years old. And I still remember talking to him like, you know, maybe he was five years ago, he was 50 years old. Very handsome French guy. I mean, like James Bond face. The guy had been an actor and male model his whole life. Really gorgeous guy. And and I remember, you know, I'm like, don't you want to do anything? Just like, I don't know, like a, a real work on the side or at least writing or just, you know. And his whole life was about basically you know, chasing women and, and appearing on film. And he had some minor success, but nothing, nothing big. Uh, and he's like, just, oh no, you have no idea the, the ability to just be free and doing exactly what you want, you know? And, and for this, I admire him, right? I, maybe I don't have the intellectual conversation I can have with you and my friends in New York City, big startup entrepreneur and fascinating engineer. I cannot have the same conversation yet, you know, I, it, it demands respect. The fact the guy went through, uh, through the keep doing through the ups and downs of life just to try to, you know, to touch what he is at the very bottom of it. Right? He's, he he follow his freedom. He follow his heart to the end of it. Right? And if he dies in LA, you know, having no kids and just just following his dream, but at least being free and, and in his own word, doing what he wants. You know, so few people do that, you know, so, um, you know, and then I know what, I mean, I can talk about so many things in LA, but I'm, I'm, I'm so really for me grateful for the years I spent in LA. They were not always easy, but just for, for those emotional connection I had on stage with people and, you know, I had some minor success with some, you know, I was on Last Comic Standing as a quarter finalist, and I was on MTV and E Entertainment. I was probably one of the only European comedian they even hired. At, at some point, I was close to have my own TV shows, and and didn't happen, which is fine because some producer was saying, "We we can't imagine the 50 years old woman from, you know, Georgia and Mississippi understanding your accent." And I was like, but they love it. It's okay, they love it. It's charming, don't worry. They'll get used to my accent, right? And fine, it didn't work. And and I moved on and maybe I'll go back one day. Maybe I'll make film again one day. I'll well, I, can hear, I, I can hear the excitement and the enthusiasm enthusiasm you have for LA, right? That's that's pretty astonishing. And it's it's something where, where I feel you would encounter because of this 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 crazy competition and the crazy amount of of it seems to be a very short term maximization of success and what that leads to is that people become fake right so they they do become fake because it makes them money at least for the next six months or the next 12 months and it's very natural to do so. You so you lie all the time. It's kind of where I grew up. Like communism was, everyone lied all the time. There was there was no benefit of being honest. Like literally not. So everyone was just better off lying ninety nine percent of the day. But they knew the other person was also lying. So and they knew that that the newspapers were propaganda and that TV was propaganda. So the, everybody was in this continuous line. There was barely any 
time spent on the truth, at least on a long-term truth. But that was okay, that was recognized. But I felt it didn't really create good outcomes because some people at least have to think about the truth. Not, not all of them all the time, obviously not. And that's maybe too complicated, but even the intelligentsia barely had any handle on the truth. They could, and if they wrote about it, it needed to be coded in some science fiction or some weird novels. And I think this, instinctively, and you said that earlier, there's no logic to Hollywood. There's just pure creativity and it's this freedom. And I think this will be things that would attract me right away. Well, I always felt I would be worried that I fall into the fitness trap, um, that I, I become someone I don't want to be because I really want what's on the other side of that producer, right, on the other side of that agreement. Uh, this is going to be my way to make it big. And I think this, this is great, right? I think competition brings out the best in people. I'm not so sure that's always true for Hollywood. Maybe I'm just, I'm, I'm just don't know enough about it. But I would be, that would be my biggest worry. Otherwise, yeah, not that the competition is too high. Yeah, no, no, it's uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a valid point. I, I just think out of a, so much desire to be something, to be someone, to meet people. You know, I mean, I always say, you know, it's it's not out of talent, it's out of desire, it's out of energy that we find the the, the best thing. I mean, there's San Francisco for tech uh, tech startup, right? Because there's so much desire to create the next best thing that actually there's two amazing things and same thing as in uh, as in uh, new york as, as in la for for creativity and film um yeah so much to be said we could go yeah so much to be said for for la did you feel and i i, I recognize that religious experience when you talk to a crowd right when you're um, when you're teaching when you're a coach or when you, when you do stand-up comedy, it's just this humor recognition, but also leading the emotion, right? So pushing people into the next stage of, of, of your script. That seems like, you know, shaman or a pastor has, has a similar role in life, right? It's this influential role, and it seems to be very gratifying. Do you feel there is more religious instinct in Hollywood? There is more of a, how do I say that? Like there is some organized new religion that is being sold, or that's just random. It's just it's really what what sells is being made. It has nothing to do. There's no hidden agenda. There's not even there's not even is something unconscious that's behind it. I mean, for me, you know, I would say it's something unconscious. It's really the, the, again this, from the desire to be heard, to be seen, to be somebody, to be somewhere, to exist. I mean. I mean, most of the, at least, you know, for all the fakeness they have, they, many of them, not everyone, they, at least they, they feel they exist, yeah. right? Even through the, 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 the creation of someone else for a screenplay or personage, a character you play, but for, the, for, for those few minutes you are alive, which is crazy because it's, when you play a character or something else, or when you go on stage, it's not totally yourself, but it's yourself. But yeah, for those minutes, you're more alive than in real life for most people, than most people will ever be alive. I mean, just, I see, I mean, right now, I mean, you know, I mean, I'm in a, I'm in a tech incubator and I'm seeing those people just, you know, on the, on the, just on their computer all day long. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm so happy I had a life before, you know, I'm <laughs> I'm creating a startup, but unless they're creating the next best thing, you know, it's like, oh my God. I mean, unless they are like a programmer loving his line of codes, 
but you know many people in just doing let's say marketing or you know logistic and like oh, just are they alive during those hours are they just just autopilot and when you're 20 you need to at least do something alive just be exist every day even if you die i mean for me even if you die in five years at least you've lived you've had an impact in terms of just uh, you know doing a marketing strategy for a company and go home and and, and, and shag your girlfriend or whatever, right? Just, it's just like, it's so, uh, just like I, some of them, young people, I'm like trying to shake them up, you know, just what are you doing? What, what's your dream? Is it, oh, I haven't thought about it. I'm like, I'm like, oh, just, is it, is it what you really love? If it's, if it's what you really love, please keep doing it. But I just don't, for 95% of people, I don't feel that way right? in most Places I go, or companies, and 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 and, and many CEOs. Busy, uh, by the way, when I was hired to do a happiness workshop, um, just before the day before, they like, you know, when you're gonna talk about passion and purpose, are you gonna are you gonna make some of my employee flee away and and trying to find a passion love, and after two years. I'm like, yes, yes, some of them, 5% of them probably not going to want to work in your company after just a day of me working with them as a group, as a group. Yeah. No, no, but it's going to be a good thing. You don't want people who are not supposed to be there. You don't want for yourself, for the productivity of the company, for the world, for humanity. You don't want them. You you. You don't want most people, you know, they are only 20% of people are fully engaged at work, 20%. But at least 20% of people, any company, anywhere in the world, any country almost, 20% of people are fully disengaged at work, disengaged. You don't want those people around. So, I mean, what, what's the point of just clinging, hanging in a such of a, of a you know, a so-so corporate culture? Yes, yeah, some people, but the people they're going to stay, they're going to be much more, much more, uh, um, the French word come to mind, much more soudé. They're going to be much more glued to each other. That's what you want. You want a tribe of people. They know why they're working at the company. You don't want those 20%. They are just, just there because there is a paycheck and because they were lazy to find any other job somewhere else. I mean... And when I have this sort of philosophical conversation with them, it's philosophical, yet it's about productivity. Because in the end, it's those people, they're not working hard enough, and they're bored, and they, so they don't have the best idea. Um, uh, I've been pondering, I've been pondering with this motto, and I think it's, this applies mostly to adolescents and, and, and people in their 20s, but I think it might never stop, is this, we have the freedom and the ability to have an individual empower so far that each individual can really follow this. How can I make the world a better place? I don't have to have a huge organization. There's nothing wrong with a big organization, but you don't necessarily need it anymore. And you do have a lot of downsides being protected, especially when we talk about Europe. Right? The downside is generally protected. There's housing, there's some healthcare, there's some food. So we really don't have to worry about that anymore. And you would predict that Europe has a more 
a society, the citizenship that's more in love with risk because their downside is already 100% protected. Like in the US, it's not 100%, but it's maybe 80% protected, depending on where you are and what the cost level is. But with UBI, maybe it will be. But I think people are not spending enough time, and that's why I love talking to you. People are not spending enough time to really think about how do we motivate people to actually not just be at home and watch Netflix all the time, getting $3,000 UBI every month, but actually get out there and make the world a better place, develop this app that nobody's ever thought of, maybe make that movie nobody ever thought of, write a book, um, do whatever comes to mind that is not just a short-term maximization of convincing someone. I always call it a little bit of a defrauding. When you lie, you defraud the other side and you, you want to be someone you are not. But which is okay to an extent, you know, fake it until you make it. But there is a point of no return where you become a person you didn't want to be. Instead, try to settle on something where you feel you can make an impact that nobody else has. And, you know, that's hard enough because there's so there's 9 billion other minds out there. We have to first find out what they've done so far and add a layer to it. And I always felt like platforms like GitHub, they're really nice for this. I know coding isn't, it looks really weird, right? You, you, you're like a hive person. But as a coder, it's easy to add another layer because it's easy to see what other people have done, add another layer and become world famous overnight and literally have a million downloads and get job offers from every single company on the planet and maybe get a, a startup offer right away. So it doesn't take long. So I think there's a lot of fascination. That's why a lot of young people go into this. And I, I struggle in, in, in really defining, I see this with my own children who are now teenagers, I, I struggle in, in raising this initial spark. How do, I, how do I motivate them that they even ponder these thoughts? Because it seems so much easier to optimize for, well, we stay at home, we have a comfortable life, um, we watch basically everything that's in the back catalog of Netflix and Hulu, and maybe then we find another streaming service to watch. And it makes me kind of happy. And I know my, my, my peers do the same thing. So why struggle? Why put an effort in? Right. I mean, why or how? Or, or is your question why? Or is your question is how to give the sparkle? Or when, when the sparkle operates? Is it your question? Well, when I'm obviously sparkle... convinced that there is a better future for this. We need to spark. But how to generate that in, in, yep. in the minds of someone who, who sees that as not a great opportunity, yep. not yep. yet at least. Right. So, I mean... You know, I might be wrong, but really, from every, you know, I've talked to like maybe hundreds of artists and adventure and entrepreneurs and, you know, people like you and I who are just trying to make a difference and try to live a, a life according to, to what we think is right now and, and, and trying to, to make a trace in the world. More often than, than not, it seems to come from a lack, really, a lack of something childhood, your teenage years, whatever, a lack of money, a lack of creativity. At some point, you were, you, there was a lack. I mean, when you, you, I'm sure you've read a lot about Elon Musk, like me, and apparently he was, the guy was born a genius, obviously, but also he had a, right, a lack of emotion with his dad, and he doesn't even want to talk to what happened with him and his dad when he was in his younger years in South Africa. And, and he, the guy was super smart, too, wealthy, and, uh, but apparently it was so awful, right, the guy. He needed to dream. Apparently, Elon Musk sometimes would appear as a robot where people say, hey, what's happening? You're not moving. What are you thinking? And, and I, don't think if, I don't remember if he says himself or doctors, etc. But the guy was so, at a young age, like eight, nine years old, sometimes he would just 
tune off in the middle of something, thinking about something, dreaming about this future life or something he would invent, right? And it seems that you need a lack of something. You need to have not all the comfort, right? Um, I mean, I'm so, I'm so obsessed by this idea and I'm so sure of you need a lack of something of being exposed to people having lesser mean than you that that's what will create your your understanding of and curiosity um i i really believe you need to put people outside of the comfort zone if their their, their zone is comfortable uh i think it should be mandatory for any kid anywhere in the world before 16 17 18 to go and live with a different family with lesser mean if possible for three months uh, I was invited to do an inspirational speech by the Rye, what was it called? The Rye Women's Club or Rye Business Club. Rye is a very, one of the wealthiest city in USA, R-Y-E, next to New York City. And those two women who had a foundation there invited me, paid me to do an inspirational speech. Why? To basically 300 of the housewife in Rye. They all came with perfect-looking, gorgeous women. They were all blonde, blue-eyed, and they all had the drivers, BMW, all of them. It was like a movie. I mean, I did that two years ago in the country club. I was like, where am I? I was like the, the step for wives. Is it like, is it for real? Uh, every single woman looked beautiful and nice. And, and, and they wanted me. Why? Because there is a crisis in this town of young boy killing themselves. All of them have rich parents. And apparently all of them say because the pressure on those boys to be everything, right? A sportsman, handsome, rich as their dad. The suicide rate is higher than anywhere else because you need to go to Stanford and Harvard. And I really believe, so they say, please give us a 20 minute speech where you tell us maybe what you think we should do to maybe not eradicate, but decrease the numbers, right? More happiness. I did it, but I did it according to what I think is right to me, but I probably lost a lot of business that day. Because my goal, I, as a coach, I hope I was going to get hired by many people to do more speech. Uh, but I, I told them the truth. I told them, you know, happiness is about joy and purpose. I do believe for the young men in this town, for the young people, if they want to have a chance in life, no matter what they want to do, they should go and experiment for a few months early on in their life. What is it to have no means? For instance, for you, it's very easy to send your son in Bronx, in the Bronx, for one month, two months, and make them live with 500 bucks a month. I lost the crowd for the very first time in my life. I lost my crowd. I still remember some of those women getting up and leaving the room. And I was like, but I did it consciously. I even told my wife, my wife said, I don't, I'm not sure you should put this sentence in. I'm like, but it's I, really this is easy what I believe 
Yeah, it's really I easy to say, you know, I, I keep saying I want to send my children to Ethiopia for a year or to Malawi. And yeah. just they, they have to, you know, I give them a stipend, but it's, it's like a minimum, like you said. But it's one thing to give this as a conscious advice to my conscious self. Yeah. And one thing is to, to do it to your children. You yeah. can't. It's, it's so difficult. I, I understand that. I, Think I, about I, your daughter, you know, just leave her with her grandparents maybe for a couple of years. It's going to break yeah. your heart. It's, you yeah. just you won't be able to recover from this. Irrespective, if that might be better for your child. You yeah. you have that problem that you feel so much sorrow and guilt that it's hard for you to live with this, and that's how I feel now. And it's it's a quandary, and I think as as parents we underestimate yes. how emotionally we be involved. We are not making good conscious decisions for our for our children. What we do, we make emotional decisions that we feel are good for them, but they are often different than what we would do with the same age children that are not ours. Yeah. And uh, it's this this asceticism. I think it's it's a great. I mean, I I feel that when you go on adventure or when you grow up, it seems to be so much easier easier when you when you start from from nothing, right? When you're poor, and uh, then the adventure is so much easier for you, and it's probably so much more rewarding. And I had George Dyson on yesterday, and he is um, the son of Freeman Dyson, who's really famous in in, in, in um, physicists. Um, um, psych yeah, cycles, and he, his reaction was to live in a forest for 20 years and to just be out there and do something completely different. He admired his father and he wanted to rise up to that challenge, but it was, it seemed impossible because he was that one in a generation. His father was his one in a generation genius. How do you deal with this as a son? Even if you're brilliant, that's just very unlikely you end up in the same place. So it's yes. a very difficult journey, and we, we underestimate that for, for our children, how difficult it is for them to, to reach that stage of value, also because it takes longer, right? We, yeah. we, we thought that a 13-year-old was good enough to, to work in the fields and, and do yeah. something useful, right? And maybe it wasn't perfect, but child labor was a thing because it was productive. And we now think, oh, my gosh, it was so cruel. But yes, but these children also could gain some confidence. They could figure out what they are good at. Now we run them through endless simulations. My children never had grades in their whole life. And they are, what, in eighth grade? They never had grades. They, they don't know where they stand. They don't know if they're better at math or worse. Nobody tells them. And I don't really know uh, compared to yeah. their peers. And I don't know if, if you run children through endless amounts yeah. of simulations, this is what we do, until they're 30, 40, 50, right. and they still don't know what the real life is, if this is a good recipe for society, it seems pretty right. counterproductive. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I, I, I get it. I mean, my, my son is three years old and, you know, I'm, I'm putting him in a, not in public school because he's half Asian and I'm scared, even in France, of racism. So I'm putting him in a Montessori school, right, next year. Uh, so, you know, but I could say, well, you know, if he get beaten up and he'll learn the true lesson of life and blah, blah. So, of course, I want to shelter and protect, but I also prepare my life my future life, like I know because I'm so attached to him, you know, when he'll be 16, I mean, I'll encourage him like I did to leave home and do something for a few months somewhere in the world. I, I will, but I already know it's going to be so sad for me, but I'm going to have to do for him, for, you know, for him and for me, but for, for him to, to, at some point he's going to have to, yeah, I, I, I'm going to shelter when I can, but I also know, I also want him to learn the, and in a way, not too traumatic, but you know, around, uh, yeah, around. I guess if he has not learned tough things by the age of 18, 20, it's 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 better. He, he needs to learn before he gets into real life, before 22, 
yeah. 21 years old. It's better because then he, he gets 40, he gets a big slap in the face and it's too late. He's got two kids. He doesn't know how to react. Yeah. A lot of people have these, these really conflicting thoughts when their children, they go to the military, right? They, they go to the army, they go into the Navy and they're what, 18, 19. And it, we look at, look at the death numbers, right? So we, we look at um, what happens to, to soldiers that get, get killed in the battlefield, but we don't really look into the numbers when 18, 19, 20-year-old boys stay at home. The death rates are even higher. It's comparable in certain areas is even higher. So we think war is dangerous, but just living life for a normal 18, 19, 20, 21-year-old boy is pretty dangerous, always been, right? So there's a reason we conscript most of the soldiers, actually, in that age, which seems incredibly young. They're basically children yeah. that we sent to war. Um, especially yeah. in the US when they go to Iraq or Afghanistan. And, uh, but, but a lot of parents don't put this together. They don't, they don't research the actual death rates. Would they say, oh, war is dangerous. Please, please don't go there. But war could be something where you steal your personality. You don't come back the same person. Hopefully you're a better person. Might not happen, right? Yeah. Well, a lot of kids are really struggling and the argument can be made to people who sign up for the military early in their life, they do it for a reason, either because that's a way for them to, to get a better sense of morality or get a better education. So maybe it's not the same person, that, not the average person, right? That's, that's an argument you can make. Talking about all these challenges, what's, what's next for you? Well, you? You said you're building the tech incubator. I can already feel a little bit that's, you're not, your heart is not fully involved in that. Is there something else you're doing? So, so I, I mean, I, my heart is into it, but I, my heart is into it. Yet I'm always thinking, of course, the, the, yeah, the, the, the next thing. I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I guess. So right you now we're building adventure. I feel. Yeah, of course, of course. I mean, I'm, you know, I can't wait to, to do a, a big adventure. For now, the the platform is what it is, right? It's a personal growth platform. We're launching it tomorrow with courses on, on resilience, reinvention, reinvention, mental health, burnout, um, optimism, uh, feminine leadership, diversity and inclusion, and so forth by some of the best uh, entrepreneurs and coach in France first, and then American coaches and entrepreneurs a year from now when, when uh, travel resume. Uh, and, and then through this basically vehicle, I want to travel and... And my goal is to use this to go and film because we film masterclass. It's a video masterclass. And it's to go and film uh, some of those people that went to our events before on stage and much more. So I want shaman, you know, I want uh, sumo guys, I want Bollywood actress on the platform. And I want to discover, I want yet to be surprised by what I don't know yet, basically. So this is why I'm creating something that I know how to build. I know how to build a, this platform. And it's going to be a means to an end, right? A means to discover new people right now because I'm not sure yet what I will be discovering. And uh, uh, so, yeah, that's, that's what we're doing now. Would you... Are you interested in extreme sports? It attracts yeah. a lot of people I mean, that, that have a similar mindset to us. So. <clears throat> <clears throat> becoming a mountaineer, um, going on, going to Nepal and climbing all the, the 8,000 um, meter um, yeah. hills. Is that something you're looking at or extreme snowboarding? Um, 
how do you feel extreme sports? How does that fit in? Uh, so I, I'm, I'm quite cautious when it comes to sports, yet I admire people who love it. But there is some cautiousness, I guess, in me. Uh, I'm, I'm tempted by doing it, but I don't do those. I, 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 but I do want to do those now, actually. At this later, I mean, I've done all sorts of sports, so I need sports every day, uh, some sort of sports. I've, I've picked up boxing again lately, uh, you know, and I box with 25 years old guys, so very young age, could be dangerous from time to time with me, for me, at, uh, you know, being over 40. Uh, so I've not done extreme sports. I've, yeah, I've not competed in extreme sports. Um, I love it from the outside. I, I do want to do adventure, physical adventure by myself again, going to tribes uh, and, and so forth. But pure physical sports, no. But I respect, I love it. And for me, it's one way to do a personal transformation, right? There's many ways to do personal transformation. Being outside of your comfort zone, you know, to get into a different, in, 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 in a different uh space in your brain where you activate new neurons to to uh, to yeah to discover a new I'm not sure I, I verbalize it correctly but I I don't do extreme sports yet I so much respect it I love it maybe because I'm extreme in my career that I've I've not picked up extreme sports maybe I would have picked up extreme sports if I were not in my career but I've been in extreme situations without but I mean, I've done the basic, I've done bungee jumping and parachuting. So I've done all those things, but I've not done as a, as a, you know, like, um, um, yeah, eight days, uh, crazy, you know, uh, uh, crazy, uh, whatever, whatever, skateboarding, mountain biking, like crazy thing where it would be very dangerous for numbers of days. I'm considering now um, going doing some sort of a survival expedition in Antarctica. And actually, it's a guy you, you should interview him. His name is Jim Nails. Nails, I met him into a, in some conference we were doing together. And what he does in England, he uh, trains people for six months on how to survive in Antarctica uh, for like eight days. So I'm considering, I'm considering doing that, actually. I, uh, I'm very excited by this. So I can give you his, his phone number and you should call him. You're going to have an amazing podcast. You know, he, he, you know, he trains people into mental resilience. And, and, what he, and he, he, he said something that really stuck with me to this day. He said, so he has a number of weekends where he trains people. What it would be like to be spending eight days in Antarctica, you know, under extreme condition, right? Extreme. And so it takes them to the place mentally beforehand where they would go through the extreme and what it would feel emotionally, right? Where you might die or, you know, uh, freeze to death of, or maybe lose limb because it's frozen, right? Or totally lose your way into ice. And he said, if I can take them there mentally, visually, before they actually do that, and they okay with taking the risk, they're good to go. And I love it. And I and, and I and I think this is what I've done every of my 
adventure, right? And I'm okay with the risk of possibly failing. I'm totally okay with it. I know I would get something out of it. And most likely I'll, I'll come out alive. And like most of his adventure, I think most people survive. And I didn't ask him if anyone died yet. But I know it's been extreme accident and, you know, so I, yeah, I love the idea of extreme sports and I read, I, I watch, I've watched every documentary on climbing mountain, even though that's the one sport I haven't done yet. And I'm, I'm scared, right? So I still have limitation. I'm scared of, uh, you know, ice yeah, mountain. There seems to be a distinction between us risk junkies. It seems like athletes and extreme athletes, they are kind of different risk junkies. They, they relatively rarely go become an entrepreneur or they yeah. become actors. It happens, yeah. right? But yeah, it's yeah. Rough. there seems to be two two setups and maybe yeah. it's genetic, maybe it's just what society imprints us with. Um, you, I don't have a lot of desire for extreme sports. I really admire it. And I think it's, it's incredible what they do and how they, they look through a very different perspective and lens of risk. But I, for myself, I'm, I'm too chicken for it. So I feel, I feel that that validates my point. But there's been a bunch of entrepreneurs um, in Silicon Valley who've, who've taken that to the extreme. Um, I think it's, um, what's the Oracle's founder's name? My God, um, he doesn't come to mind right now. He, he started his sailing regatta with the ultra-fast um, boats. And uh, there's been a bunch of people who've been taking up uh, kite surfing to an extreme and, and go out into the ocean here which seems extremely dangerous, even from boats, it's not, not an easy place to be. And, uh, but, but rarely I see an intersection. So a lot of, like Silicon Valley doesn't, is not really connected to sports beyond a simple, you know, I want to stay healthy yeah. and I want to do the, the basic cardio and I want to eat healthy, but it's not, it's really going into extremes. And then if you got, you have this whole other set of people who, who are really feeling comfortable um, in Xavier de la Rue on um, in really life-threatening situations, there's a lot of race car drivers, but they don't seem to have an, a lot of interest for Hollywood or a lot of interest for businesses. They either think it's so boring or they don't have the same idea of, of, of risk-taking applies there. Yeah. No, yeah, I, uh, yeah, I, I agree. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a different... It, so I've been wondering because when, the day I did bungee jumping, I actually took a lot of friends with me, uh, but none of them were... Yeah, they were not really entrepreneurs. They were more... Uh, architect or freelancer or some corporate guys, they, they were not entrepreneur or artist, right? Yet, they all had a much better time than me mm -hmm. when we did bungee jumping. So I'm very proud I did it. But I, I can tell you I was scared to death when I actually jumped. So, and I was like surprised because I'm not afraid of anything usually, right? Anything. So I'm like, I'm the one who brought my friends None of them is a risk taker like me. All of them have a more, much more, you know, set up life and not too much risk. And yet, they follow me. They jump. They did a second jump, and and I was really scared the first one. I didn't do a second one, and I'm like, what what happened? So I actually asked question to the the, the trainer, the, the the organizer. I said, what's happening there? I mean, I'm the risk taker and. Even though I was the lead guy, I brought my friend, I, I didn't have a really good time. And he said, it's not the first time. It's very common when I bring entrepreneurs. Many entrepreneurs want to do, but they don't have a good time. They hate, they scare. And many corporate guys are okay. It's sort of a, uh, because you're taking the risk, but 
usually you're very much in charge of the risk you take, you know. And here, exactly. it's just a rope, and it's just you, and you have no... Um, yeah, no control no, over it. No control. And, he actually and the risk-reward ratio, right? So we as entrepreneurs constantly look at the risk-reward ratio. Right. We, we, we feel we're really married to it, and that's... Right. We, we haven't played this out before we do something. And, right. you know, just not just as entrepreneur, but also artists, they, they, they look at the risk reward ratios. But if, if most people are not aware of it and they, they just they just enjoy the emotion, they don't have any second thoughts. They, they, yeah. they, they get into this emotion. They're certainly scared, but then right. they get into this emotion. They're hooked on yeah. it. And that's, that's what I've noticed. It's, it's, yeah. it's odd, right? So there, there seems to be something where the limbic brains easily takes over. We, we, for people who are risk takers in, that, in a different sphere of life, they, they kind of have more frontal cortex control over that. Yeah. They're like, oh, this, this is too much risk for the little reward yeah. that I get, a little right. penalty shock that I got. Right. right. Yeah, exactly this. I mean, I was really, I really in terms of self-awareness, it was, a, it was a, a big moment, you know, and thinking like, really, I like to be in control of things, but I'm a, you know, I'm, a, I'm an artist, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm an adventurer. So yeah, you, 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 you take crazy risks, but you are in control. So I said, oh, okay, okay, interesting. So something to be said for that and, uh, and this. Very fascinating. Well, I hope you're going to take more risks very soon, Mario. Thank you. And uh, I hope we get to see you again. You were such an inspiration. Thank you for doing this. Thank really you. Appreciate that. Thanks for taking the time.